Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fun show for you this evening. Rod Machado is here, America's flight instructor, in my opinion, and I cannot wait for him to join us here on the show. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge is in full swing. If you want a chance to win a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, just get the free Social Flight mobile app for your phone or whether that be uh, an Apple or an Android phone, get out there and fly. You can just check in at any airport. Even one check-in at your home airport has you entered to win that prize. And then uh, more check-ins that you do, more flying that you do. If you make it onto our leaderboard of like the top 30 people, you get an extra entry and an extra chance to win. In addition to that, Social Flight's FAA learning system is also in full swing where you can go on to socialflight.com, go to the FAA credits in the menu section. It's a big icon, says FAA credits. And then that whole area allows you to watch videos and earn wings credits. Or if you're a mechanic, you can get AMT credits for the awards program. And most importantly, this time of year, as we approach March 31st and the deadline, if you are an AMP mechanic with an inspection authorization, you can get your eight hours of education in order to renew that uh, just through social flight. And you do it from home, you can do it on your timetable, and you can get certificates that are legal with the FAA for that education. Again, just go to socialflight.com and click on the FAA credits section. Tonight's broadcast and our show is brought to you by Massimo and the Mighty Sat. And uh, I'll show you this right here. This is the Mighty Sat. I'll tell you, I absolutely love this device. It has changed the way that I fly and my awareness of altitude and how important our oxygen levels are when we fly. Uh, I used to fly with uh, occasionally, even when I was only going above certain altitudes, and I would like go out there and get like a really cheap like device off of eBay. And I found when I compared it to this device, it was night and day. The Massimo Mighty Set includes an app. Uh, it, it breaks down numbers for you that just don't exist on other products, not just your oxygen saturation and your pulse rate, but a perfusion index, which tells you the strength of the blood flow, your respiration level. It'll show you what's happening to your breathing and something called pleth variability, which is your hydration and breathing effort. So it really gives you a good sense, especially during cross-country trips or flying at night, about how your health is is how your performance is going in terms of your health that uh, has to do with breathing. And I've been shocked at, uh, you know, the impact on night flying and things like that and have really changed the way that I use supplemental oxygen, even at some lower levels. So check out the Massimo Mighty Sat and they are a strong supporter of social flight. So thank you so much to them. 
Now to tonight's guest. Rod is a legendary aviation author, speaker, and flight instructor, combining his unique approach to flight training with his humorous style that makes learning to fly a simpler and more enjoyable journey. An ATP-rated pilot who still gets excited at flying a Cessna 150, Rod has logged over 8,000 hours most of it while giving dual instruction, which is so amazing. He has a degree in both aviation science and psychology, which no doubt has led to his unique style of teaching. And if that's not enough, he keeps his students in line with his knowledge that he holds black belts in both Taekwondo and I always get this wrong, Hapkido, and he will uh, certainly correct me on that. Uh, also having trained over a decade in the Brazilian based Gracie Jiu Jitsu, Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live. I'll bring him on the line right now, Rod Machado. Did I get that pronunciation right? I'm sorry, say that again? Did I get the pronunciation right of those yeah. martial arts skills? Because if I don't get it wrong, you're going to hit me. Hapkido, that, that's, uh, that's that uh, Korean martial art. And uh, uh, yeah, actually, if you know seven oriental words, you don't really have to practice self-defense. You just yell them out if you're ever attacked. In fact, it took me many years of studying martial arts to realize that the martial art cry, the haya, actually uh, is Japanese and it means ouch. So, you know, you remember that. I think you're in pretty good shape. So that's that's fine. And, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I... this is so exciting. First of all, I have to tell you about the oximeter that you that you wear, uh, or that you have the Massimo oximeter. That's a wonderful device, and uh, and I have mine, <clears throat> by the way. And um, when I first got it, when I first used the oximeter, I, I thought I, they put it on to to do my nails, and I would have to have ten of them. And uh, what you have to do is read that thing correctly, because when, when I first looked at it, if you read it upside down, I, I thought my uh, oxygen content was like 50%. And I thought, I'm going to have to start taking deeper breaths. <laughs> anyway, I have so much fun in the doctor's office whenever they put that thing on. Um, and because, uh, uh, you know, I, I, that's why I like to go to the doctor a lot. You know, you can have so much fun over there. They take everything way too seriously. Um, by the way, I was going to ask you, what do you think about that uh, Chinese balloon deal? Wasn't that something? Mm, absolutely that was amazing i i I, the way i figure that that chinese balloon was getting more flight time than southwest was for many months uh because you know southwest wasn't doing very very good there for a while but uh they didn't have to check notams apparently before they cruised across the country and uh yeah yeah for anyone out there, my, my good friend brian turner of uh, just plain silly put out a hilarious parody on that on that balloon it's it, it's a pretty funny little uh, little thing on there but what did you think about that with the obviously it's way above uh, where our airliners would be flying yeah no it's uh, you're absolutely correct you know you're upwards of about 60,000 feet or so and uh what a great way to get a look at all the uh you know uh secret installations that are apparently now not so secret. Um, you know, it's probably seen uh, Area 51 in greater detail than any citizen of the United States. So uh, I, I that's just was just amazing to me. But, you know, I'm 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 glad we shot it down. I wouldn't want to be the fighter pilot, though, 
who shot that down in the F-22 <clears throat> because you, you know, you know when he came back that he got probably the worst ribbing that anybody could ever give, uh, get, get, and that is, you know, oh, wow, you experienced such great danger. Did, did any of the air gushing out of the balloon cause any disturbance, maybe a little turbulence <laughs> or something like that? Oh, what a close call, brush with death. I would say. So did it do a bag over when you got close and the air was coming out? And, you know, that's an aerobatic maneuver in a balloon. So uh, I I would imagine that he probably resisted having to go do that. No, I would have gone after the balloon in my Cessna 150, but uh, if it got low enough, I, although I don't think I could have kept up with it. That's the problem. Might not have been able to catch it unless I could, you know, sneak up on it in a dive. Because so, the Cessna 150s aren't really known for their, their speed. As the old joke goes, they're the only airplane that can get bird strikes from the backside. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I love that little airplane. It's so much fun. Do you think they painted a little balloon on the side, like a first kill or something like that? Oh, you know they did. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure everybody stood around and, you know, they, they applauded and things like that. I just wouldn't have gone back to the airstrip or the boat. I, I would have flown off and, you know, uh, sold the F-22 Raptor and got a new identity and started a new life. It had to be very embarrassing. So, but anyway, he's probably the bravest of them all to accept that mission. Exactly. So, um, Rod, you've you've got a lot of stuff going on. I've seen uh, new blog postings that are going going on your your website. Obviously, your books continue to be updated. Tell me a little bit about uh, what your you know kind of most recent mission is in educating pilots when it comes to kind of to these modern times where aircraft GA aircraft are are selling like hotcakes and. Everyone seems, it seems to be a completely new renaissance of general aviation, which probably means a whole bunch of new people getting involved. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, a, again, good observation on you, your part. There is sort of a renaissance in aviation in the sense that it is inspired by the opportunity to uh, be able to fly for a living, to fly as a professional pilot. And, you know, that very few times uh, in general aviation, <clears throat> excuse me. Very few times in general aviation do we have the opportunities uh, to uh, become a private pilot and then transition relatively quickly to the flight deck of a major airline. And, you know, they were, according to, well, there are very estimates about this, but we may need about 200,000 pilots in the next 20 years. And I know the head of ALPA always says, no, there's no pilot shortage, but that's his job to say that no matter, no matter what the facts are. Facts aren't important when you're uh, apparently in that position. Uh, there is a pilot shortage. And if it weren't so, then many of the uh, United Airlines wouldn't be starting its own flight school and JetBlue and so on and so forth. So um, <clears throat> it, it's... Uh, it, it's definitely there. And I've only seen this, I've only known of this twice, this type of pilot shortage, and have only seen it once. And that was just prior to 9-11, where uh, pilots were being hired by the local regional carrier. And they were being hired, Jeff, with 400 hours of flight time, 500 hours of flight time, and 50 hours of multi-engine time. <clears throat> and you think... <clears throat> That you know, that's such a low amount of time uh, to be, to be hired. And uh, but in reality, if a pilot is well trained, that's not an issue at all. Because if they know the basic concepts of how to fly, attitude, pitch plus attitude plus power equals performance, and they understand angle of attack, and they've got a good grounding in the basics, they're fine. They'll be an airplane is an airplane. Um, a regional jet is nothing more than a big 172, and, and that's a fact. And I, I don't say that as a throwaway line. 
that is a fact. And uh, 1964, there was also a pilot shortage where uh, United Airlines, PSA, and several other major air carriers took people off the street and uh, told them, if you get a private pilot license, we will give you a job flying our airline. And that's just amazing. And we have that now. So uh, that's a good deal. It bodes well for anybody who wants to fly for a living. What a great time uh, to be in aviation. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that uh, the economy stays strong and uh, then uh, the sky's the limit. Now, you asked, uh, of course, my grandfather always said I was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. And that's why, you know, I keep on talking. But uh, when it comes to aviation, I just. I love to, I love to talk about aviation. You asked what new things have I got going on, um, in terms of education, and uh, one of them is I wrote a blog, in response to the FAA's uh, newest chapter that they've added to the airplane flying handbook, and as we've talked about before, my sole mission uh, in aviation, the sole thing that I want to do that I've been inspired to do for the last thirty years, and that is well, actually last last since nineteen seventy three when I started instructing, but in particular the last thirty years uh, is to allow people to get a private license with a minimum cost, minimum hassle, and jumping through the fewest number of hoops required by the FAA. And you can get a, a license at a fairly reasonable cost with a, uh, and have fun doing it, but the FAA still seems to put obstacles in the way, uh, and not because they're, they have uh, bad intentions, it's just because I think that their understanding of how people fly airplanes doesn't comport well with how people should fly airplanes. And by that, I mean, the FAA and many people in that position of ASF 800 that makes policy for general aviation, they have what I call jet brain. That's jet brain. And everything they think about in terms of flying is always thought of in terms of how to fly a jet. And, but people that get a private license don't fly jets. They fly small airplanes. And there's nothing about flying a small airplane. Uh, There's nothing about flying a jet. Let me put it this way. That pertains to flying a small airplane, but everything about flying a small airplane pertains to flying a jet. So in other words, it goes one way, but it doesn't go the other. So if you can, what you know about a small airplane transitions or transfers directly to flying a jet. What you know about a jet doesn't transfer necessarily to flying a small airplane, but the FA thinks it does. And so, therefore, we teach pilots, you know, as soon as they lift off, they, they need to go to their climb-out checklist. No, 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 they don't. They need to look outside and fly attitude and make sure they don't bump into anybody. Uh, flying long, low-profile descents and, uh, it, it uh, in essence, takes the fun out of avi- aviation and doesn't add any safety factor whatsoever. So in this spirit, the FAA added a chapter to its airplane flying handbook called energy management. Now, this is one of the more confusing chapters I've ever read. And again, I, I, I talked to the guy who put that in the FAA manual and he thought it would be the greatest thing for general aviation pilots to know this. And no, it wouldn't. I told him that uh, in my own opinion, a 300 word paragraph with a picture of a guy going up a hill and down a hill on a bicycle conveys the concept of energy management perfectly. And you don't need all the fancy hydraulic graphs and the angle of the word angle of attack is only mentioned once in the chapter. And there are some very confusing uh, graphs in there. It, 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 uh, 
you know, it's like getting a two-scoop lobotomy when you try to read this thing and comprehend it. Uh, you need an Egyptologist or a cryptographer to be able to understand. And I'm, and I'm, yeah, I'm being a little sarcastic with it, but it's very difficult to understand. Has no impact whatsoever. But you see, that's the jet mentality. We don't want jet brain. We want general aviation brain. And those are two different things. And don't get me wrong. I'm not, not anti-FAA. I'm anti-bad ideas. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the problem. This was really a bad idea. And I wrote a blog about that. It's uh, on my uh, website at rodmachado.com. And you can go there, read it, and <clears throat> make up your mind and you know decide for yourself. But it's just very, as a flight instructor, I would not recommend teaching uh, energy management that way to your student. Uh, it's, there's a far easier way to teach it. So do you uh, instruct the same or differently when you have a student that – you know, student A tells you that their goal is to fly for an airline and, and that's their, their mission. And student B says their goal is to, you know, get their private pilot license and, and go out for lunch, every, you know, every weekend. Is there any different, you know, they have no aspirations to go the other route. Do you teach them any differently? That is a, uh, that is a very insightful question. And I'm, I'm not just kissing up to you because I always wait to the end to do that. But, uh, no, it's, a, it's a great question. And the answer is no. I don't teach them any differently whatsoever. It's the exact same way. All the basics, the fundamentals are the, uh, the things that I teach any primary student. Nothing changes. Um, you know, I don't make the jet noise when we're taxiing out to make the student think he's uh, flying a big airplane. Are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure I could see you doing that. Okay, I did it. I did it once. So I, uh, but if you, unless you have video that shows that I've done it more. They're cranking it over and you're there going... Could, you no, know, I actually, I actually did that. Now, you have to understand that sometimes, uh, um, sometimes I shouldn't be left at home uh, alone without adult supervision. But um, many years ago, and I want, I want that on the record. Many years ago, uh, I would actually have the student key the microphone. This is when you could get away with this. You can't get away with this now. But at, at Orange County Airport, before it became John Wayne, the student would key the microphone, and um, I, I would have him go. I'd make, he'd make that noise and I key the mic and I go, uh, Orange County Tower, this is, uh, Cessna 2132 Bravo heavy, ready for the pushback. <laughs> and the controllers would come on and they go, Hey Roger, Cessna 2132 Bravo heavy, clear for the pushback. Let us know when you're ready to taxi. But you see, you, you could have so much fun. Now, if you did that, uh, you'd end up in FA jail. So, yeah. uh, and I don't, I don't want to go there again Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> anymore than I have to. So many, many, many years ago, I may or may not have accidentally pressed the mic that push to talk when doing a cabin, uh, funny announcement, but I mean, who knows that, that, you know, that, well, that I know may... I saw it on the internet. So uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll be sharing the link at the end of this program. Everybody's yeah. Everybody's done something like that. You know, it's uh, it's just all part of the fun sometimes. But uh, crazy stuff happens. So um, you know, when it comes to to the things you you've talked about, energy management, for example, um, I, personally, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my personal bias has been that that more and more as time has gone by, that many pilots uh, that own aircraft even uh, seem to understand 
less about the capabilities of their aircraft. You start to see wider patterns and more, and like you said, shallower, uh, uh, you know, approaches. And, and they, if they get into a situation where they really have to do something that's well within the capability of the aircraft, like slipping it in or, or understanding how to go, how to, how to go very slow or S turn to deal with a slow aircraft on the runway, maybe I'm just like the old getting to be the old guy with get off my lawn. But it seems to me that, that I'm seeing less of those skills and command of the aircraft than I used to. What's your impression? Well, first of all, it's interesting. You mentioned S turns because I'm surprised how many people have bad penmanship uh, because S turns more look like Z turns or or N turns or uh, in turns or, or, or something like that. But uh, it's, it's an interesting point. Well, it comes back to uh, the jet brain deal, right? At Orange County, uh, John Wayne airport, the, if you if you take a look at flight track and you look at somebody, if you could you know listen on the radio to Orange County uh, uh, Tower and you listen and you watch on flight track the way some of these pilots are flying their their airplanes and this is not uncommon at many airports across the country. Um, you know the uh, aeronautical information manual has uh, a, a recommended pattern and this is the basic recommended pattern about a half mile to a mile to the side of the uh, the runway center line and then about a half mile down before you turn base half mile base half mile final and that's the ideal pattern of course you can't do that if other people are in the traffic pattern so you have to accommodate them but if you're the only person in the traffic pattern there's really no reason to extend your flight to your downwind and uh, start descending on the downwind, which by the way, uh, there's no operational benefit for descending on the downwind because anytime you descend on the downwind, if there's an airplane underneath you or if there's an airplane above you descending on the downwind, uh, that just increases the collision or potential for a mid-air collision. When everybody's on the same level, uh, literally, in the traffic pattern, that's your best chance of avoiding everybody. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, and seeing avoid is the operational concept there. So you try to hold off descending until you turn base but some people go so far out and they start descending and they're out making these long low profile descents and you see at john wayne airport we have two runways that are separated only by a couple hundred feet and the big jets land on the right runway smaller planes on the left and i watch and and it scares me to watch this but these airplanes on the left runway small airplane runway are flying underneath the descent path of airplane of jets descending on their three degree profile to the right runway. And so as those, uh, that, that jet's coming in and the small airplanes here, those wingtip vortices are descending right into the path of that small airplane. All you need is a good strong crosswind to carry that uh, uh, wingtip vortice over and your airplane's gone. I mean, it's just, it, it's, unfortunately it doesn't happen very often, thank God. But the point is that that one needs to re- be uh, remain vigilant of where that jet traffic is as well as fly a nice normal pattern not get too low and so on and so forth. But the other part of what you said is I found very, very interesting. You mentioned that sometimes people are afraid to slip an airplane. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is very intriguing because um, it's interesting that uh, we're afraid to slip an airplane. And yet uh, they think that slipping, people think that slipping is dangerous and yet it's a required maneuver on the private pilot check ride. Have you noticed that skidding an airplane to landing is not a required maneuver on the private pilot check ride. That's because the way you get into a spin is you skid. It's very difficult to get into a spin by slipping an airplane. 
Let me explain that in a very simple way with this airplane right here. Okay. Can you see that right there? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it looks like it needs all help, but go ahead. <laughs> this is the high lift device here. This is the low lift device. Just think of this as a rental. Okay. Uh, and perfectly comfortable. And uh, let's see if I can, if I can do it, do it this way. And so as this airplane is uh, flying, if, if uh, to think about slips and skids, don't think about angle of attack here. It takes a little longer to describe this way. Just think in terms of how the airplane uh, wings change speed by use of the rudder. If I were to take the rudder and add left rudder, the left wing has sped up, uh, left wing has uh, moved back, and the right wing has moved forward. Um, does that make sense? Can you see that from that oh, yeah. orientation? Yep. Okay. Yes. If I add right rudder, then uh, what happens is the right wing moves back and the left wing moves forward. So therefore, by adding left rudder, left wing moves back, it slows down, right wing moves forward, it speeds up. So obviously, the wing that slows down is probably going to be the wing that stalls sooner compared to the wing that speeds up, it's not going to stall as soon. So here I am making a left turn onto, uh, from base onto final approach. And as I'm turning left, let's say I start the turn coordinated, but let's say I um, hmm, see that I might be overshooting the runway. Uh, and I sit on the right side of the airplane anyway, and I'm looking to, in this case, the left side of the airplane, I'm looking to the right, and it looks like a majority of the cowling is off to the right side of the airplane. So consequently, I think, oh, no, I'm going to, that makes me think I'm going to overshoot the runway more. So I add a bunch of left rudder to bring that nose around. That left wing has gone back. That left wing has slowed down. The right wing is actually sped up a little bit. Now, if I get anywhere near a stall, because I don't monitor my attitude properly and let the airplane slow down too much, the right wing, the left wing is going to stall first. And the right wing still has a, a tremendous amount of lift. And as a result, this airplane is going to flip over like this and spin. And at traffic pattern altitude, that's very difficult to recover from. A slip is different. Let's say I'm making a right turn of a left turn from, in this case, uh, a base to final. As I'm making that left turn, then uh, what happens is if I don't add left rudder. Let's say I'm not adding any, let's say I'm just using the rudder improperly. I've got a little right rudder in there. So I'm making a left turn. I've got a little right rudder. The right wing has gone back here. The left wing has gone forward. So the right wing's probably the one that's going to stall first. In this case, the left wing won't. In this case, I'm adding rudder opposite the direction I'm turning. I'm adding right rudder, which means now I'm slipping. I've got right aileron, right rudder in this case meant to say right rudder. And so therefore, left aileron, right rudder, I'm slipping. The right wing has gone back, left wing has gone forward. I need to add left rudder to be able to keep the turn coordinated. But in this case, right wing has gone back, left wing has gone forward. The right wing slows down, left wing sped up in this case. So if this airplane stalls, the right wing is going to stall first, correct? Yes. And if it stalls, it is, it's going to rotate this way, right? Mm -hmm. but the energy of the turn is directed that way. So this airplane is, it's unlikely this airplane is going to spin because the uh, directed energy of the turn was in this direction originally going this way and the airplane it will just stall. This wing will stall first, but the airplane will just pitch forward because it was slipping. And as a general rule, airplanes, when they stall from a slip, do not roll over. They just sort of roll 
And if it rolls, it'll roll in this direction in a very in a very mild way. And that's why uh, when you're slipping an airplane, the chances of uh, entering a spin are very, very low, even if you wildly mismanage the slip. And there's another factor there. Slipping an airplane actually reduces the stall speed slightly. And the easiest way to think about that is you're using part of the fuselage uh, to develop the lift for the airplane. There's also a reduction in the horizontal component of lift. So essentially what happens there is um, you don't need as much lift developed by the wing, so your stall speed slows down just a little bit. So there's really no reason at all to be fearful of slips and to really overcome the, uh, let's say, whatever latent concerns one might have about slipping and stalling. You need to go up and uh, uh, stall your airplane from a slip and mm-hmm. see what happens. And I have this on my website. I've, I show a couple slips uh, that are entries into stalls and the airplane knows, as I said here, just sort of noses down like that. And there's no radical rolling motion uh, as you would experience when entering a spin. So I find that I find it very interesting that um, students would be uncomfortable about the spin, but it is understandable because uh, it's something that um, it's a radical maneuver in the sense that it appears to be so um, uh, different from ordinary flight because it is different from ordinary flight, but it still uh, doesn't have any of the inherent danger associated with it that spin uh, that skidding an airplane on final would have. So my recommendation to anybody that wants to uh, uh, feel more comfortable in an airplane is go up and uh, stall your airplane from a slip and uh, you'll be really surprised. Most airplanes are just mild mannered when it comes to that. There are a few that get a little squirrely, but then they're squirrely all the time anyway. So, uh, but in most of the airplanes we fly, it's, it's not an issue. And then of course you maintain the, you control your airspeed with attitude in this instance. Uh, and airspeed can be off a little bit depending on the pedostatic tube, uh, location orientation, but you fly the same attitude, uh, maybe a little lower because there's more drag involved, uh, in a slip and, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's nothing to be frightened of. Wow. And, you know, there's there's another factor which I think is is really interesting. I think it feeds to what you were just saying. When I've when I was uh, taught to I guess I kind of was taught twice. I was taught once during primary training a little bit about it and it it didn't take. I can tell you that. And then eventually after I'd uh, owned uh, an aircraft for a little bit, there was an instructor that came up with me that just knew that thing. But it was a Grumman traveler knew it inside and out. And he showed me really how to slip it in and it changed, it just changed the way I flew, took the fear away from that. And I ended up using that technique so often. And what I kept thinking, I guess what stuck in my mind, uh, and I'll put this in very layman terms instead of the proper flight instructor terms. But when I was slipping, I always felt like I had this wonderful energy reserve or lift reserve because I knew that at any moment, I could kick kick out that rudder to like let it, or, or remove the kicked out rudder. I could go back to coordinated flight and have a ton of energy to 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 flare to roll out. Mm-hmm. But whatever I needed was just there. So even though I felt like I'm dropping like a rock to get to the airport, as soon I knew as soon as I straighten out, I've got all sorts of control authority. 
Yes. No, that's a good observation. And you, you do. Uh, an airplane in a slip is in a very high drag profile. And the moment that you release that rudder and uh, neutralize the aileron, uh, then all of a sudden the airplane goes back into the configuration that gives it the least amount of drag. And that's, you know, at, uh, let's say, best glide speed pointed straight ahead or, or thereabouts. And uh, so you do get, uh, you do have tremendous control that way. And um, the, uh, I, I think that if you don't know how to slip, you end up with a, a limitation of your flying ability uh, or and flying, uh, uh, let's say, potential that um, really can put you in an awkward position because um, you mentioned uh, rudder use in here. When you enter a, a slip, the way to do it is you take the aileron. If let's say I want to slip to the, uh, I want to make a slip to the right, I'll add right aileron, which by the way uh, will normally cause the nose to yaw in the opposite direction just by adding aileron only. So I'm going to add right aileron and left rudder, and uh, so by adding aileron first and then applying rudder to bring the nose around like this. Uh, rudder is the limiting factor in a, uh, in a slip because depending on the size of the rudder, depends on how much of that nose canter I can get this way. And so some airplanes have small rudders like your uh, Grumman. They don't have very large rudders. Cessna 170B has an insanely large rudder. So you get it and along a, a fuselage. So you get a tremendous amount of uh, yawing potential there, which then means I can then control my uh, drift angle uh, with the ailerons. And therefore, I can drift this way, release the aileron a little bit and drift this way. And then when I want to <clears throat> recover from the slip, I just release the rudder and the airplane will typically align. I neutralize the aileron. You don't want to enter a slip by adding rudder first, because if I were to add rudder first in a slip, I do. I'm in, if I attempt to slip by adding rudder first, I would do this, which, by the way, then has me um, making a, a, a starting to make a, a left turn or right turn, excuse me. But the nose is pointed outside the turn. I'm skidding. You don't want to do that. So uh, add your aileron first and then add your rudder. Bring the uh, left rudder in and apply full rudder. If you want to do a nice, full, strong slip, apply full rudder and then uh, add that aileron to control the drift. And the only thing different between a forward slip, which is what this is, and uh, let's say a side slip, is that in the side slip, um, the airplane's fuselage is just aligned with the runway centerline. And uh, you know what the runway center line is? It's that white thing that moves back and forth like this as you're moving across uh, this way when you're flying an airplane. I never had that problem, though, as a student. I would just call the tower and have them activate the runway center line widening device. And uh, they were very accommodating for me. No, we didn't have one. I wish we had one, but uh, we didn't have one. And uh, so, therefore, I would uh, then... Uh, in this case, I would uh, then go ahead and bank the aileron uh, to compensate, uh, bank the airplane to compensate for the crosswind this way, and then use my rudder to keep the airplane uh, perfectly aligned with the runway center line. So, Got it. Yeah. Does and, the does the direction matter when you do that? I seem to recall. It's been a while from from doing it, like in the Grumman, but I seem to recall kind of foot right foot on the floor and left aileron, so that I'm 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 looking straight out you know, on my side and watching myself come straight to the runway. Is that, does direction matter? Well, it doesn't matter in terms of wind. No, you can slip, you know, uh, 
with the wind on the right, wind on the left, that, that really doesn't matter uh, in terms of aerodynamically because the airplane doesn't know the difference if the wind's blowing from the right or from the left. The only time it does matter in this case is let's say you have a, a crosswind from the uh, right. Let me see if I can get this right here. I was covering my face with a camera, which many people enjoy when I do. I cover my face with the airplane, so um, I'll try not to do that. Um, but uh, if you had a wind coming from your left here, and you're coming around this way, making a left turn onto final, then uh, it, it would make sense then if you, wanted, if you were high and you wanted to slip, you just keep the aileron in and add right rudder. Uh -huh. And that would allow you to slip. And now when you release that rudder pressure, the airplane, you can still maintain a certain bank angle. The wind is still from the right. And now you touch down on one wheel. And, and this tends to freak people out sometimes. Touch down on one wheel. Yes, you touch down on wheel. Now, that doesn't mean you touch down on one wheel. And then you maintain the one wheel pivot and taxi all the way to the transient area, trying to balance on one <laughs> wheel. Impossible. It doesn't work. I know I've tried it. So as a student. So in this case, in this, it would make sense if you have a crosswind to uh, slip in the direction from which the wind is blowing so that you can use that forward slip transition into a side slip. <clears throat> and that's how that works. How about other things we mentioned, uh, you know, uh, S turns and, and right now my, you know, my head's kind of stuck on all the things we see in a pattern where when someone really seems to have command of their aircraft and they're comfortable with it, things just go better. It's kind of like dealing with an air traffic controller. You know, sometimes you're dealing with an air traffic controller. It seems like the ones that are handling the most are the calmest, are able to like, they'll let you do pretty much anything and they're working a million planes and they're really calm. And then you get to someone who's a little uncomfortable and they won't let you do the simplest thing. <laughs> I know. Um, there, there's nothing more beautiful. That, Finish your, your statement there. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, same way in the pattern where, where again, this just may be my experience, there's, we're seeing fewer situations where when things get a little hairy, someone takes longer to get off the runway or whatever, it isn't just easy for whoever's in the pattern to just give them more time and do maneuvering to make that happen. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, sometimes pilots just take longer to get off the runway. And whenever the tower <clears throat> says, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize for the cough. It's awful dry here in Southern California. That's my excuse. Uh, I knew it was a bad day to give up smoking. <clears throat> no, I don't smoke. I, I don't smoke. Never have. Stuff's terrible. Um, but the um, sometimes pilots just have a hard time getting off the runway quickly. And when the controller says clear for immediate takeoff, they mean immediate takeoff. They don't mean when you want to take off, take your time. Mosey onto the runway. The concept of mosey doesn't exist with the concept of cleared for immediate takeoff. There's no mosey. We saw what happened in Austin, Texas there when, you know, the airplane was taking off one jet and the other one's coming into land, missed each other by a hundred feet. That's nasty stuff. By the way, at uh, Orange County Airport, AKA John Wayne, many years ago, Western Airlines was holding short of the runway. There was a jet on a four mile final, United Airlines, and they were both 737s. And the tower controller said, uh, he was a British controller. He said a British accent. He said, Western Airlines, uh, you are cleared for immediate takeoff, sir. Immediate takeoff. And the old gruff Western Airlines pilot says, all right, immediate takeoff. And, uh, <clears throat> but he moseys onto the runway. You know, if he couldn't make an immediate takeoff, he should have said negative. Um, uh, I'll wait for another slot or negative. <clears throat> um, I, I have to hold here for a second or whatever. <clears throat> 
He didn't do that. He moseyed onto the runway. As he moseys onto the controller's getting nervous. It's Western Airlines. This is Orange County Tower. Cleared for immediate takeoff. And the, the guy's moseying on like that. And um, then the, the controller finally said one more time, cleared for immediate takeoff. And the co- pilot of the Western Airlines jet said, hey, you think you can fly it any better? You come down here and you move the throttles. That's what he said. And so he eventually takes off and the jet on final lands no problem. As the Western Airline jet is climbing out, the controller says, he, wasn't, he didn't let him go to departure control. The controller in the tower said, Western Airlines, this is Orange County Tower. I have an amendment to your clearance. And the Western Airline pilot says, all right, go ahead. What is it? And the controller says, turn right, enter the downwind, cleared to land. And the pilot said, why are you bringing me back to the airport? And the controller says, well, if you want me to fly it, you have to bring it back. So, uh, anyway, that's a rather long story, but that uh, like actually that. happened in John Wayne Airport. Um, you know, it's, it is it is interesting that sometimes when you watch a controller work traffic, it, it really is a work of art. I had a friend, uh, John Slip, uh, when he was an air traffic controller, worked at John Wayne Airport. He could work like 14, 15 airplanes on the downwind leg himself. I mean, he was that good. He just had him. He just memorized everything and knew where they were. He was fantastic. But at John Wayne Airport now, um, I was, in fact, Diane and I went out flying last week and uh, they had one airplane in the traffic pattern and they had to close it down for the, on the left runway because it was too much traffic. In other words, there was a work workload overload or something like that. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, come on. That's, that's outrageous. You can least work. They should just let me work the traffic from my airplane. Be a mobile tower. This is Ramishado Mobile Tower. No, a number two. No, now a number one. And so you're number one. You're now number two. Anyway, so um, uh, but you know it, it is interesting that uh, the watching somebody when I give somebody a flight review, I can tell immediately how well they're going to fly by watching them fly a traffic pattern if they're the only one in the pattern. Uh, in other words, if they fly a nice let's say tight traffic pattern and to watch somebody do this well, it's so impressive because let's say they, they take off, they, uh, they, uh, as they, as they climb out this way, they're turning uh, onto crosswind as they turn on the crosswind, if they get close to pattern altitude and they have to level out, they have to level out from a climb. And so they not only have to have uh you know, sufficient uh, coordination here, of course, but as they start to level out, they have to bring the power back, matching that with stopping the altimeter moving and then rolling out onto the downwind leg. You know, that's, those are quite a few balls in the air to keep um, uh, suspended, so to speak, and to keep everything coordinated. But here's the real secret when you watch somebody fly an airplane, uh, to tell whether they understand the concept of attitude control in an airplane. And this never fails to reveal somebody who has command of their airplane. I watch them. As soon as they level out on downwind, if they reach over and they flick the trim, they set the power. In other words, attitude plus power equals performance. They set the power for whatever power setting they want. Let's say 2300 RPM in your typical 172 or 150. And then they reach over. They don't mess with the trim, slowly moving it up and down, up and down, just like that slowly. No, they don't. They take the trim and swipe it two or three times, and then they don't let go of the controls. They just ease up on the pressure, watch what the attitude does, and then make another swipe of the trim. Bingo. That magic word you learned in church, 
They've got the airplane perfectly set to where it should be. That's precision control. When I see that, I go, whoa, that is, this guy is going to be fun to fly with, guy or gal. And when they turn base and they pull that power back, a radical power change, they turn on the base power back and I watch them. And if they go like this with the trim and then just ease up on the, on the pressure and then make another swipe of the trim and then just ease up on the pressure and the airplane attitude doesn't move. I know I've got somebody who knows how to fly an airplane and it's attitude. In other words, the airplane knows how to fly better than you do. So uh, as a, as as a metaphorical statement. So um, it really, in that sense, I, I I think uh, that is the concept one should strive for letting the airplane do as much of the flying that it's capable of doing by proper use of the trim and uh, attitude and power control. So I don't know if that's directly in line with, with what you asked, but that's what I look for when it comes to uh, looking for the, you know, the quality of airmanship in an individual that always impresses the heck out of me. The other yeah. thing that impresses the heck out of me is when people actually look outside the airplane and, uh, and I, I don't want to be like the kamikaze pilot who has to do all his bragging ahead of time. But uh, let, let me just say, let me just say this right up front. I, I don't know anybody else who looks outside the airplane uh, as much as I do. And that's probably because I don't know anybody else who is as concerned about bumping into another airplane as much as I am. And I, I, I tell you, I look, I look out the airplane a lot. It's something that I've, I've always done. And it, it, it's something that I try to inspire other people to do. But now it's very difficult for people to look outside. You know, we're so focused on looking inside and looking at the you know, pretty TV screens and uh, the wonderful displays and what have you. And uh, um, it, uh, it, it's something I wish more pilots would do. It's so mm so important you know people climb out from an airport they take off climb out and uh if the engine quit they have no idea where they're going and they 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 have to reorient themselves from outside inside to outside uh and of course before they landed at that airport if it's a new airport they should have reconnoitered the area as they're on downwind and base to find out hey there's a good place to go uh, a golf course with a par four landing strip right over there and uh they should think like that but they we typically don't teach that to pilots. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, focusing so much about what goes on inside the cockpit versus outside um, puts someone at a great disadvantage, I think. Yeah. And by the way, I got to tell you one, one thing I, I love doing on a flight review. And, and Jeff, if I tell you this, uh, I know that no one watching this is going to want to take a flight review with me, but uh, it's something I do. I just reach over and cover up the panel. Sometimes I'll use uh, no, you know, no peakies, uh, soap dish holders. Sometimes I'll just use a whole cloth and put it right over the, uh, uh, the panel and uh, say, okay, we're on the downwind leg. I want you to land the airplane. And um, so, oh, what, what, what's going on? I said, uh, let's just say I simulated instrument failure. Oh, well, sometimes I'll reach over, pull the cloth off, and I, I go, what, what's going on? So I simulated fixing the instruments. And uh, so, no, 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 put that back on. And uh, that is a very difficult thing for people to do. But it's not difficult if you understand the concept of attitude flying. Attitude plus power equals performance. Not what the FA has changed it to now, which is pitch plus energy state equals total energy. The FAA's got some very strange um, machinations going on in their, in their uh, formula for 
energy and attitude control, but it's attitude plus power equals performance. Very simple thing. And that's attitude plus power. Attitude, not attitude plus throttle position. Those are two different things. So if you think, okay, Dalwin, I have no, uh, I have no, no airspeed, then I'm just going to fly the attitude that I remember uh, using when I had the airspeed I wanted. And so consequently, one or two traffic patterns, all of a sudden people become so comfortable being able to do that. And it's actually a fun thing to watch because once they do that, they go, yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. You know, it's, it's, it, there, there's no magic here. Uh, in, in other words, once you reveal the attitude plus power equals performance, the magic is gone. It's like Richard Bach says in his book, Illusions, when you know what the magician knows, it's not magic anymore. I believe that was Donald Shimoda. So uh, one of the fun books that was written. So it, do, yeah, it's, do you think that, that we can, I guess we can do a better job, or do you think that, that people don't do a very good job today in, in understanding why we learn some of those maneuvers, like what the real application in a real world is of some of those things, like oh, turns gosh. around a point or S turns or all that, as opposed to just going up to, we're going to go up to 3,000 feet, we're going to make you do this. But they don't really understand how they can use that skill in, mm-hmm. in, in the real world once they get their ticket. Very, very, very true. Um, the, 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 every maneuver has uh, something uh, that is uh, that the maneuver supports. And mm-hmm. a good example, the FAA will tell you that steep turns are to develop your coordination, timing, what have you. And that's true. That's, that's very true. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But steep turns, as an example, teach something far more important. Uh, than timing and coordination. And those are important now, don't get me wrong. Uh, But steep turns teach you what it's like to experience an increase in stall speed and be warned of that increase in stall speed by increased weight on your derriere. And it teaches you how to operate in an increasing potential stall environment. And so we don't normally think about that. that. That's the purpose of a steep turn. When you feel that weight increasing on an air, on your seat, that is a clue that you are approaching uh, your st- a stall because the stall speed is increasing. Um, S turns, as an example, on final approach. Uh, now, it's very rare to see somebody do S turns on final approach. First of all, when they do S turns, they're, as a general rule, the people I've seen do that, that I've had do that, uh, they do very, very shallow S turns. There's, again, nothing wrong with that, but they're shallow, and it, that doesn't reveal the lacking of co- the lack of coordination sometimes in those turns. A coordinated turn, right and left, maybe up to 30 degrees bank, if you need to, in order to increase the spacing that you might not have on final approach, it allows you to slow down a great deal uh, to allow that other airplane ahead of you to land, because if you don't have to go around, it's, you know, it's best not to go around. Uh, so, uh, but S-turns are a perfect way to do that. And, uh, but again, it's, those are some of the older things that people don't typically, um, older maneuvers that, uh, that are simple maneuvers that are valuable maneuvers that people typically don't use. You know, you said you feel like the older man uh, in aviation, get off my lawn. One of my favorite phrases, by the way, I'm planning on getting some lawn so I can actually use that phrase. Well, it's just like my grandpa. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I would let people go on my lawn. 
just so I could tell him to get off it. And uh, but uh, the idea that uh, that maneuver S turns on final, just as an example, slips in this case, and the difference between slips and what have you, um, those are important things to uh, to learn. I, you know, I, I frankly, I'm surprised most more people don't fail check rides because they don't use the rudder and aileron in coordination properly. I'm really surprised. I fly with people that are, you know, some airplanes like in in the 182 and the 210, you have, and and some of the Piper products, you have rudder and aileron interconnects, spring interconnects between them. And that was originally intended uh, for operation in cruise flight, where you're really not making radical changes. So you can, you know, make a small movement in cruise flight. And and if you didn't use rudder, you know, it's not going to be a big, massive, obvious lack of coordination there, with lack of coordination being technically a slipper skid defined as more than one quarter ball deflection. Uh, Something I never saw as a student pilot. I only saw that ball moving through the center. Even if they put cold Vaseline in that thing, it would just move back and forth between the two. Anyway, so um, the, uh, the idea of using rudder and aileron in a coordinated way is also something to watch from a flight instructor's perspective. Uh, and it, it's amazing. And also when uh, pilots fly an airplane smoothly. I remember taking a check ride with one lady one time. She had been, she's a, a real pro instructor. And I took a check ride to get checked out in the airplane for this uh, flight school. So, and you know, I, I was excited. I get to take a check ride. I don't get a chance to do that very often. So we go up and, f- and we fly. And she gave me the best compliment anybody has ever given me. And that is, she said, wow. I forgot what it was like to fly with somebody who flies smooth. And not because I'm, I'm a great pilot or anything, but I'm a flight instructor, so I know how to fly. So, uh, but anyway, she had to spend all that time flying with uh, pilots who were, you know, weren't flight instructors and, and they were yanking the controls back and forth and what have you. So smoothness is, a, um, is an attribute that uh, tends to impress experienced instructors. I sure know it, it impresses the heck out of me whenever I see it. And I, and I think, oh my gosh, that's just more smoothness using trim, attitude plus power. Airplanes just, you know, the, the, guy, the guy's really playing, if the pilot's playing a real high-end game here and uh, he's letting the airplane, you know, do its thing and he's just controlling it with the ever so... Um, slightest amount of input on the controls uh, that just gets me excited (laughs) it doesn't take much to get me excited that gets me excited and it's fun to watch i remember years ago uh, flying with a a test pilot and you usually think of test pilots i guess i thought of test pilots as like oh man you know how to do all this extreme stuff or or whatever it's quite the opposite like you fly with a test pilot and Uh what you notice is nothing you notice that they, everything is perfect. Everything is perfectly level. They, every, every altitude or turn or whatever is, it's just like the ball never moves and you just perfectly roll out on the right heading, perfectly roll out on, on the right altitude. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's, that's a, a, an extension of what you've just mentioned. Yeah, that's what you have to do as a test pilot, you know, to be able to get the, uh, to understand the the per- performance of the airplane, you have to be able to control it so that what you see is uh, not an input from your lack of control. And so that's what, uh, that's why they fly so smooth. Um, a friend of mine took a check ride 
a first aerobatic lesson with the late and great Art Scholl. Art mm. Scholl was a very famous aerobatic pilot and, and great instructor. Uh, he had a school out here in Rialto many years ago before he, he passed away. And uh, or he went west in this case. And my friend got in the airplane. He was an aerobatic pilot already. He was good. He was uh, my friend Keith. He was really, really good. And uh, so Art says, okay, uh, let's go up. Let's do some straight and level flight. Keith said, oh, I'm going to knock this out so easy. So he takes the airplane, levels it. And Art's just sitting there watching him. And Art says, okay, your heading was off two degrees. Your altitude was off 10 feet. Now we've got some work to do. <laughs> and I'm, that is just the coolest thing, you know, because this man has a, 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 a caliber of flying that is so far different than what other people had. But that's what he trained himself to do. And here's the amazing thing. Most people can be uh, can be trained or can train themselves to do something similar, similar. And by the way, you know what the benefit, the ultimate benefit of doing, you know, letting the airplane fly itself, trimming, flying attitude, knowing what attitude to look for, flying coordinated. The ultimate benefit is this, so much extra time to look outside. <laughs> and that's the key. Yes. That's, and that's what flying's all about anyway. And you uh, not only, you know, know, where you can go if the engine does decide to stop operating or if you're flying a multi-engine airplane and left engine quits and you can't get the right one started uh in this case then uh that's a joke by the way um i don't fly with only one engine operating uh anymore and so consequently it gives you a tremendous sense of comfort in the airplane yeah that's my take on that anyway that that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, so, a last big topic for you as we approach the the top of the hour here, and uh, uh, we are myself especially will be having to transition and start learning tailwheel uh, for real if we're going to get this Mustang going. And uh, what when when you take someone who is an experienced pilot, but you are transitioning them to tailwheel and and trying to teach them all the bad out of all the bad habits of, of lack of proper rudder usage. What are your mm -hmm. tips? What, what kind of information do you have that'll help, help us along the way? I have a, uh, I have a sign here that I, I picked up from Amelia Reed Aviation many years ago, and it says, I'm reading it right now, real aviators fly tail draggers. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's curious. No, that's, that's not true, but it's, it's, a, it's a funny little sign. And uh, think about this. Have you ever done a full stall landing in a tricycle geared airplane? Accidentally. Words, <laughs> <laughs> accidentally. Hey, there you go. Good answer. You are instructor material. That's, uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, the uh, full stall landing, otherwise known as AKA soft field landing. Where you take the airplane, you hold it off, you add a little bit of power just before you touch down. Maybe you have full flaps. Uh, typically, you do. So you touch down at the slowest possible speed, and then you don't lower the nose immediately to prevent the nose gear from digging into the soft surface <clears throat> as we simulate this. Well, if you were to take a tail, whenever I check somebody out in a tail dragger, I tell them that I want to, them to imagine that they're landing a tricycle geared airplane, but they're doing a soft field landing. Because... <clears throat> The way you touch down in a tricycle geared airplane in soft field landing configuration is the same attitude you touch down in a tail dragger. Hmm. It's the same thing. The airplane's almost near stall. And when that tail dragger settles and all three wheels touch down, the airplane is at its uh, a stall angle of attack. And so consequently, um, the uh, 
two are exactly the same. If I can get people to think that, just bring the airplane as I normally would, do the normal flare, but then do a soft field landing. They don't necessarily have to add power in order to uh, do this as you would in a regular tricycle geared airplane soft field landing. But if you do that, then you're fine. And then as soon as the wheels touch down, then that stick comes back when all three wheels are on the ground that stick is back because you do not want that nose to go forward you hold that stick back that's another reflex you have to develop in this case and uh then you uh slow the airplane down of course with appropriate rudder and then brake application when rudder becomes less effective but the real key with that is being able to keep those feet alive Mm. and there's another thing that older pilots uh that is an old pilot technique and i have a book by Barrett Studley. It's called Flight Training. It was written in 1929. And I'm, I just blew me away when I read this. But it's a technique I've seen used over the years. And I use the exact same technique. And that is, in order to keep a student's feet alive, to remind them that they actually have feet. And those feet are connected to the brain. That uh, when you have a student on final approach, in their first introduction to tail dragger, if they don't feel if they're if you know they don't know that much about rudder or maybe you don't know what they know about rudder usage so their their feet are not normally active i have them just push back and forth in that rudder just a little bit so they can actually sense that threshold of control of rudder movement so the nose of the airplane is just kind of doing this it's it's hardly moving at all but they know that those rudders are capable of moving that nose. And as soon as that airplane touches down in that, uh, I'm doing that again, I can't believe it. Um, Many people were applauding, yeah, keep it there. We can't see your nose. Which by the way, I do have a slightly big nose. My grandfather told me that whenever I, uh, if I ever laid down in a sailboat, it would probably change direction. That that really hurt. Uh, But anyway, so uh, in that, (laughs) you know, he was really a good man. Uh, Yeah. After he got out of prison, I mean, he changed. So um, I'm not sure sure how he changed, but uh, no, he was never in prison. Uh, But anyway, so when you uh, are on final and you're getting ready to touch down in that soft field landing configuration in a tail dragger, just keeping that rudder active so you know that as soon as that airplane touches down, any slight uh, pull on one wheel or the other could send the airplane moving this way uh, or that way, then that rudder is right at your fingertips uh, or your foot tips and you have the immediate memory activation for that muscle control and you keep the airplane uh, aligned and that is you know you can tra- transition somebody into a tail dragger in you know three or four landings you can do it so that they can actually land by themselves unassisted and feel good about making the typical soft field landing normal landing in a in a tail dragger so you're Mustang may be a little different. I've I've never flown a Mustang before, so I don't know how effective the rudder is. But if it's not a big rudder, it's not as effective. You just have to move that rudder pedal more. And, uh, oh, one last tip, if I have the time, and that is this. Um, Sometimes it's easy to over-control. If you have a big rudder, it's easy to over-control. Then use the concept of the pulse. Just take, and if the airplane starts going this way, sometimes people put way too much left rudder in on the ground as they're moving, and it'll over-control, and they'll do that. Don't do that. Just take, and if you start moving moving this way to the left, pulse the right rudder. Just give it a, a pulse. See what happens. And that brings it back to center. 
This way it keeps you from over-controlling. Uh, I learned that from a friend who flew simulators. It was so difficult to keep the simulator moving properly because the, uh, you know, it was easy to over-control. He just pulsed the controls when he needed to to stop it and make it do what he wanted. That's a great idea. Well, I'm going to put those to, to work uh, as, as soon as, uh, as I got an opportunity to start doing that tailwheel training and get ready uh, for our Mustang. So thank you so much for those tips. And thank you for joining us here on the show. It's, it's always fascinating. I hope you'll come back. Uh, there, we could talk for hours, literally. Oh. And uh, I am just, just grateful for, uh, for all thank the you. knowledge that you impart. And My please, show, yes, show us your book. 704 pages. And it's the uh, private commercial uh, handbook. So that's available at my site now. So Absolutely. Uh, and that is at rodmachado.com? rodmachado.com. And uh, so are my uh, videos, my blog posts. And, um, you know, please visit. I'd love to have you. Take a look around. Absolutely. Well, Rod Rashado, thank you so, so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live. It is always a pleasure, and I would encourage everyone to go check out your website and uh, and use some of those materials to learn because it is I, – I love your work, and it is it's just such a great way to learn with such wonderful insight, including those that you've provided today to us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a real pleasure being here, and thank you so much for being an excellent and amazing host. I really do appreciate it. You are very welcome. Have a wonderful night. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. And to all of you, thank you for taking time to join us tonight here on Social Flight Live. We will be back next week on Tuesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Take a, a little bit of time away from your Valentine and join us here or bring your Valentine along because we are going to have a wonderful show with Tammy Jo Schultz, the fantastically talented pilot that landed the Southwest Flight 1380, the 737 that had an uncontained engine failure. And uh, she, uh, her story is remarkable. Her life story leading up to that with military experience, et cetera. And then the story of what it was like to bring that crippled airliner in and save all those lives in such a challenging situation. We will then be back on February 28th, another Tuesday at 8 p.m. as always with Ramona Cox, otherwise known as Sky Chick. Her adventures, especially in the backcountry, are really, really wonderful stories. And so be sure to be here for both of those shows and so much more to come. Again, thanks so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live. And I wish you all blue skies. 